Hello, I'm Matt Pryor of the Get Up Kids, and this is Vagrant Records, 25 years on the streets, where we tell the oral history of the label by the artists, fans, and insiders. This episode is the first of two where we'll attempt to tell the story of Census Fail. From somewhere in the swamps of Jersey, Census Fail shot out like a bullet when they were just teenagers. Their road to even their initial success was a wild and winding one, and the fact that they finally found a home on Vagrant was kind of a last resort. I spoke to the one and only Buddy Nielsen about the time, which was right around 9-11. Oh, the other voice you'll hear on this conversation is super producer of this podcast, Jesse Cannon, who worked on Census Fail Records. You brought up 9-11, but like, did you guys start pre-9-11? Like right, like August, maybe. And then 9-11 happened, and then we kind of like didn't do anything for a couple months because everybody was real like just freaked out. Freaked out, but also like, what do we do? And, you know, I don't know. I was a senior in high school, so I was like, I don't know. What am I supposed to do with my life now? Like, this totally changes the entirety of, like, I mean, it literally changed my entire um, course of life. You know, I I, I decided to pursue music versus the other things, um, you know, because, I mean, I I saw sort of the fragility of life, you know, Mm -hmm. right in front of my face. So I use that, you know, as a way to uh, decide, you know, what we, what do you do? You're, you're 18 years old, or not 18, I was 17, you know, what do you do? What do you do with your life? Where do you go? 9-11 sort of shaped that. So then we officially really started getting going in February 2002. So like a couple months after 9-11 and, you know, we all got together and kind of solidified members. We had had some people popping in and out that, you know, really didn't have much of a full band until February 2002. So that's like the official start date. So then is the first release that EP that you guys were talking about before? Yeah. Did that come out on drive-thru? Well, it actually came out on a smaller label called ECA. It's um, this this guy, Dave uh, Conway. He's... Um I think he's, I don't know if he's involved with Billie Eilish now, but he is, yeah. Involved with like working group and dog. And so, I mean, he's gone on to have a very successful career and and he was just running this small label out of Boston and we had our stuff online and uh, he was like, yo, I want to put out, you know, an EP. And we're like, okay, cool. We did like a thousand and we had like a, you know, a CD release show to VFW and, you know, and then drive through got word, you know, we did the thing, we mailed out press packs to Vagrant and everybody, you know, we did the whole like, thing you did back then and um and drive through ended up signing it and then uh i think we added a song or two and then that came out so did they uh, re-release the ep then yeah they did a okay. re-release and we added a couple things to it and uh you know official different artwork and they did that we signed like a five or six record deal with drive through <laughs> yeah yeah nothing nothing predatory about that at all no 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 no, no. signing teenagers to a 20-year contract basically yeah yeah i mean Worked for us, but yeah, well, no, I know. Lucky. I just we got lucky. I mean, we got we got very lucky. There's some really funny like industry insider stuff that happened on the back end with the EP that like they pretty much had a glitch, a quote unquote glitch in their merch store that would multiply each like T-shirt sale as an album. Okay, um, so <laughs> so they were paying one, royalties on that? No, of course not. <laughs> I mean, I don't remember what the glitch was, but like we put out the EP, and like six months later, I mean, we had sold a hundred thousand copies, which pretty much kicked. It, they ended up screwing themselves, really, because they lied about our our how successful our EP was, which just meant that they had an upstream clause with MCA. So we sold like a hundred thousand, you know, and and that of an EP at that time from that music scene was like kind of a big deal, especially for a band that like I mean, we didn't we. We were we did a couple tours by that time and by you know like I'm saying it came out early 2003 I'd have to look we got some really big tours but we had no business selling that many records that quick I and mean, when it didn't even work because the other thing that was happening for us we're like how do we sell a hundred thousand records but we're only drawing like a hundred people so then we started to realize like oh there's some some weird going on <laughs> I remember asking Ellis, like, yo, being like, yo, what's going on? Like, how come we're not bigger, but everyone's saying we're so big? And like, he's like, I don't know. You know, he didn't have an answer. And then we started to sort of do some digging and found out that like, this is another thing that was happening with some of the other bands. I think like maybe the early November. I've never specifically spoken to them about it. So then Geffen, who back then, you know, maybe one of you guys could enlighten me even more, but all the major labels were coagulating into eating each other at like the, an ever like exponential pace of just like, you never knew one week, you know, MCA existed, the next week it was now Geffen. So they inherited the deal with drive through and they pretty much decided because, you know, this young band and this music scene that, you know, Caraba had just come from, let's just take, like, let's take that. They sold a hundred thousand records. So we did the EP and like, I don't know, less than nine months later, we got upstream 
streamed, quote unquote, to the major. Did you have any say in that? They didn't like go like, hey, we think this is the best thing for you. Is this something you guys are cool with? Not at all. You just found out one day that you got a new label, basically. I mean, we knew signing the contract that that was a thing. I mean, they were very upset at their situation because they had signed this deal with MCA and pretty much they're like, MCA steals all our bands. And we're like, well, I mean, (laughs) they were doing well. They had a lot of money. They're funding your label and you're pretty much like a feeder system. They're going to take your bands. I mean, they took Newfound. You're AAA ball, basically. Yeah. You You get upstream to, is it Geffen? Is that who you got upstream to? Yeah. Yeah. And then what did, What was Geffen's deal? Like, It sounds like they were going to shelve you almost. Like that was the impression that I got. Well, I mean, I got the impression, like we wrote Let It Unfold You and we finished it. We, we did this whole tour. We did a whole drive-through tour and it was all successful. And, and you know, we were, we had finished the record already and we were hoping to have it released early in 2004 or something because we we, we felt we couldn't tour anymore. And we, we had this record in the bag and we felt really good about it. And we felt like we were losing some steam, meaning like, okay, so, story of the year came out and was like fucking massive boom and we're like dude like that's like the same band as us like (laughs) we're like we gotta get back out there like dude this is like you know the used is huge story of the year is huge like we gotta fucking go like now is the time like this style of music is is like the thing and we were like we're ready we're ready to go and they're like okay we don't feel we have a single okay fair enough so we went in we wrote Bear to Lie and Rum is for Drinking probably two of our biggest songs ever so it worked out it was super you know super good mm-hmm. not a bad not a bad problem Um, we weren't anti we came back and they're like yeah we're just not feeling it and we're like dude like <laughs> what a the- fucking stupid note to get like it's just like what does that even fucking mean? But it was like, like, why I was you, like, why'd you bring the, the band fuck? here? And like, if you even, if you start to dissect Barry Lie, it's very, very similar, similar sort of song to Sugar We're Going Down. And I always kind of felt like in an alternate universe, if they had just taken Barry to Lie, like, I, this is obviously just, just for fun, a hypothetical, like we, uh, we could have been, a, that could have been a giant radio song. I mean, it's very same tempo, very same deal, you know, and it just, it, we just, we weren't given the shot. Uh, Geffen uh, was, at the time run by this guy named Jordan Shore who's like <laughs> everyone who has dealt with this man considers him one of the biggest clowns to have ever walked through the music business David Gaffin put together one of the greatest record labels of all time and Jordan Shore literally ruined it it's such a bummer and you wonder like if you lit if you literally had to trace you know if somebody was to go or I was to go you know why didn't sets us fail have the success of fallout boy or my cam and there's a million different reasons you know like you can you could point to songwriting and and you know I wasn't I'm not the greatest singer and I've had all sorts of you know things with that and and it is true but also I would say that Geffen Records just deciding to let let it unfold you go is one of the stupidest things that you could ever think of doing at that time frame I mean they had want a record that would have been just as big if not bigger than all the other records comparatively they just let it go they had it they owned it they paid for it and then they let it go to Vagrant because they didn't know what they had and didn't care. I mean, luckily for us, I think our our, our idea was like career long term and it worked out. But, you know, had they just put it out and put it in the system, I I, I mean, I fucking think we it would have been an even bigger record. Well, I mean, it, I have, it had I have, songs. Yeah. I have two questions there. One is, why didn't they just send it back to drive through? And two, did Vagrant have to buy it or did they just like let you guys go? What I did is I actually leaked the record. Oh, you sneaky bastard. You, wait, you're who leaked? You guys accused me of leaking it. <laughs> the fuck, you fucking asshole? Nobody knows I leaked it because I never told anyone. Oh my God. That's cur- You remember that I got a fucking horrible, horrible call this year, show me, and I didn't even have a copy of the version that leaked. <laughs> I leaked it and the leaked version didn't have it's got some different lyrics I, I don't we felt like we were in like a fight for our life because like I said we we felt like timing when you're that well especially you've heard you've heard obviously heard all the horror stories of bands getting like shelved and just kind of like this band this band could have I mean it happened to fucking Jawbreaker it happened to a bunch of bands you know and like Finch which another drive through band was on Geffen at the time I mean this is also so one of the reasons as I get into the whole story of this and how we got to Vagrant is we looked around and we saw our peers being shelved and manipulated and the ball fucking dropped. Like this was not Island. This was not fucking uh, DreamWorks with uh, that whole system. I mean, this was a fucking disaster. This was Jordan Schur being a, a fucking idiot and everybody else was in a good system, you know? So we also were like, dude, 
<laughs> we're going to get screwed. Like we better figure something out. So, cause we played the game. So when we got upstreamed, we had a local promoter who is, you know, still a friend of ours and everything. He was managing us and we're like, dude, we, we have to get a real manager. Like um, we, we love you, but we have to go out and get like a big time manager. We're on a big label. We're, we're playing in the big leagues now. So we went out and got Bino. Buddy, there's this Heath. Heath Miller. Yeah. Heath managed us. And you know, we, we just unfortunately just felt like he didn't have the experience and we didn't have the experience and we needed somebody, a new manager, once we got upstream to uh, Gaffin. So we hired this guy named Bino. <laughs> Bino? I don't really know how to say it any other way than Bino is pretty much the stereotypical Hollywood. Uh, my parents are rich and I fell in some shit. He uh, was friends with the guys from System of a Down and he started managing System of a Down and he started Velvet Hammer and does the Deftones and he's been uh, incredibly successful in his career. Uh, and that's the nicest and best way I can say it. So he pawned us off to his day-to-day -day guy because he's like, I don't know what this is, you know, but we'll snap it up. They're on Geffen, cool. And we're like, cool, we're in business. You know, we, we got a fucking good team and we played the game. We went back, recorded a single, and then our, we felt our management wasn't fighting for us because we're like, dude, we're young. We This is the best we can do. Like, I'm not trying to shortchange us, but like, that was the best we could do. We, what the fuck else are we supposed to pull from? We're 19 years old. We went in. We did the best we could. These are the best songs we have and we need to get them out. Um, and they're like, well, you know, look, the label doesn't think you have a single, so why don't you just keep writing? We're like, dude, fuck no. Like, they also managed this band called Stun, which we thought was hilarious. <laughs> and was like, probably, if there is a band from that era that more money had been dumped into that was not successful, they were this fake manufactured sort of emo punk band. Sort of like Letter Kills thing. But <laughs> no offense to Letter Kills. God, this whole thing, this whole world is so foreign to me. And it's only, it's only like three or four years removed from my own career in the music industry. Stun was like, they dumped millions of dollars into it, didn't go anywhere. Nobody liked it. It's just all that. Yeah. But, but so we felt that Bino wasn't, he came back to us and had a meeting with Jordan Shore, you know, presented Let It Unfold You with the new songs with uh, Buried Alive and, and Rum is for Drinking. And they were like, yeah, no, we're not feeling it. We're not. And we're like, dude, like it's already been nine. Like we got to get this out. And we we had a real problem with our management, so we ended up firing them, hiring John Reese for to go in and battle the label again. So we hired John Reese, who managed the used at the time, as well as a host of other bands, Story of the Year. So we were like, okay, cool. Like John will go in there and like tell him what's up. John goes there. We hired him on like a Friday. He came to a glass house show uh, that we were playing. We hired him, and he used to be friends with this guy named Scott Harmon, who's a kickboxer, really giant, massive man, and he he would go everywhere with him. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> That's good for negotiating, I and guess. John's huge too. Yeah, so those guys were like, you know what, we're going to send those guys in. They went in like two days later than a meeting, and they came back and they're like, yeah, they don't feel like you got the songs, and we fired him. <laughs> <laughs> How does this get you to Vagrant? Like, it just sounds like you have a series of of bad choices of managers and labels. Yeah, until you LA, so the, pretty much we're hostage on a label and we're trying to get off. We're trying to figure out something because the label is like, you need more singles. And we're like, we don't need more singles. And you're this already, with, you're already with Ellis at this point. Yeah, Ellis has been okay. from uh, from like kind of like day one before. And he's like, dude, you can't like keep firing managers. No one's going to work with you. You've been through two managers in less than like a year. And then you go to Ellis, you go, so what's your fucking idea then? And he goes, yeah, I don't know. He, you just I, need to not keep firing. No, no, no. His idea was, well, look, let me see what I can do. Like, so it was basically Ellis's idea to talk to Egan and be like, look, because behind the scenes, uh, Interscope had purchased Geffen. We are under the umbrella of Vagrant. So we sort of were like, fuck, if we could just get to Vagrant. It was like getting to back to the island or lo in Lost or something. If we can just get to, if we could get to Vagrant, we can release this record, let us do whatever we want, and we're, we're going to be good. The problem was getting Jimmy Iovine to sort of just tell Jordan Shore to fuck off is a long process, especially for an act like us at the time that just really wasn't moving the needle comparatively. But, you know, Egan had a fucking dashboard and that was like the golden goose at the time to Jimmy mm -hmm. Ivan. So he's like, okay, like, I trust you and let's, you know, it took, I mean, it took a long time. I mean, it took like nine months to really facilitate the whole thing, which is basically just a con 
transfer the contract. So the record was done for nine months. So a year and a half, like a year and, and change later. You know, which at the time is kind of a long time, like especially for a young band who had a really good buzz, who was trying to come off of an EP. It's ages. Yeah, I mean, we felt also too, we struggled because we're like, we don't even have a full length out. Like, so we have to get this full length out. So yeah, I mean, it took about a year and a half to like, and the, it, from like done. So it's it's different if that was a year of writing and stuff. I mean, it was done. We finished it. We were hoping it was going to come out potentially either later that year. I mean, the, the hope was that it was going to come out later in 2003. So it ended up coming out like a year and a half later. Who paid for the record? Did Drive Through pay for the record? Drive Through paid for part of it, yes. And then some of the other sessions were paid for probably from Geffen. But then, I don't know. It sounds like an accounting nightmare. <laughs> well, the Drive Through logo had to be, and still, I believe, has to be on Let It Enfold You. Okay. I'm sure that, I'm sure Rich loved that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we didn't want to go back to Drive through because we felt that that was sketchy and not a, not a good place for us. So we're like, obviously, you know, that probably would have been the best, easiest move was like, dude, just let us put it out on drive through, you know? But we were like, no, no, we don't want to do that. No, no, no. We want to go over here. Were you excited to go to Vagrant? I mean, yeah, that, that scene definitely. was already pretty well established. And like you were saying, like Caraba was already huge. And Alkaline Trio and you guys and Saves the Day. And all the bands were d- doing well. Were you like, it, it sounds like you were in this like kind of like com- completely frustrating situation that you're just kind of like, I just want to go somewhere that'll put the fucking record out. Yes. But were you at least excited to like come into that quote unquote family as it were? Did you feel like that? And did you feel that they were welcoming to you in that regard? Because I I know that like Ellis kind of has a big part of like getting you to Rich and then Rich starts managing you. And then like, did you feel, because you're kind of like the beginning of the next wave as it were of bands that came onto the label. And did you feel like you were part of something or did you feel like you were outliers or like what what was your feeling about going to Vagrant at the time? I mean, I I think it was just, we were just relieved to be able to just have a functional okay. situation. I don't think I ever really have felt part of the Vagrant thing. I always kind of just think of ours as we're like a drive through band because once you got stamped with that and we were almost the last of the drive through We were, I would say, uh, us in the early November and we're the last successful drive through band and the only one that has never still broken up out of that like second wave of drive through bands. And I always kind of felt like, you know, we weren't really a Vagrant band. We were sort of a drive through band that sort of got adopted. <laughs> <laughs> You're our stepbrother. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but at, at that point, like, I was already so, like, over the music industry. I didn't really, I didn't care. I wasn't looking, I wasn't looking for some type of... Camaraderie? Yeah, to me, it was all just like, yo, like, this is a business. I had already, like, been burned with that from the whole drive through thing of, like, like, thinking that this label or anything was going to provide any kind of, like, family or just camaraderie between bands because you'd, you'd, you'd got to have a sense of that. I'd be like, hey, Midtown, like, we're on the same label. This is sick. And they'd be like, <laughs> It sounds label. Right. You know, this, this fucking label. It sucks. sounds like that scene was way more like competitive within itself. Oh, than, yeah. I mean, no, it's it insanely, it was insanely competitive. A million percent. There is a camaraderie between bands was uh, very hard to come by. I think when the stakes and the ceiling starts to be sort of endless, it's different. When you have like a cap on the ceiling, literally, it's like, dude, like, what's the point? Like, we can all be successful. You have a, you know, a little more of a socialistic mindset. But when, you know, it's full on capitalism, sort of like, dude, every man for himself, like if if they're not going to get it, then we'll get it. That type of thing. It's unfortunate. And I hate to be that, be all socialist on it or whatever, but if it's like once too much money comes into anything like that, it can help with creativity as far as like having the freedom to be creative, but it also like breeds competition. Well, it breeds greed too, not necessarily from the artist's perspective, but from the people who are financing that. Yeah, that, the that people art. who are exploiting it and, and using Sometimes it. Sometimes from the artist too, but yeah. Know. Yeah. So anyways, coming to Vagrant was like just a relief. It's like, thank God, like we got, we made it. Like I felt like we were going to be able to have a career and we weren't going to be ruined because I mean, I mean, I literally, we were literally scared that we were going to end up like Midtown or end up like Finch or end up like Starting Line, like all bands that were just super bright, like, had super bright futures that just got destroyed and chewed up by the Geffen MCA system. Uh, Newfound was able to make it through, but I mean, for the most part, all the bands that got fed up other than Caraba, which is a totally different story, out of the drive-through system just got destroyed. 
Here's Steve Evans, who produced Let It Unfold You. How do you get hooked up with uh, Senses? I was doing a bunch of work for, for Drive Through. We started that record for Drive Through. So the studio was housed in the same building as a strip club that you had all these like Russian strippers. Wait, wait, where is this? Dover, New Jersey, Northwest Jersey. And it was in the same building as a strip club? It's literally the show place strip club was called, it was called the show place. Uh, also, it used to be a rock club, which incidentally Kirk Hammett made his debut with Metallica at the show place when it was a rock bar. <laughs> <laughs> This is a very Jersey best, story. You are the best. Yeah, you are the best at dumb Jersey hair metal trivia. <laughs> dumb Jersey hair, <laughs> dumb Jersey metal trivia. Well, anyway, it was this. Yeah, owned by the like Russian mob or whatever, and like so. But I mean, like a full on like the other side of the building was this full on like top end recording studio, just killer build out. Like in the live room, there's three ISO booths. If you go to the right ISO booth, it's a, just a giant ISO booth. It's great. Pull back a curtain. There's a door. You can open the door, go through the go through the storage room of the strip club and get into the strip club. That's wild. A good place to bring uh, a group of, uh, well, 15, 18 year old kids to make a record. Who all just got a gigantic publishing check. Uh, Yeah. So we're, we're making the record at Showplace. In the middle of making the record, Drive Through re-releases the From the Depths of Dreams EP that the band put out on that small label, that ECA label. The upstream deal that Drive Through had with MCA, but then was Geffen, kicked in immediately. So we were making the record for Drive Through, and all of a sudden, we're making the record for Geffen Records. Was there more money? No. Well, the record was kind of like almost done, but meanwhile... The record's like three quarters of the way done before mixing, like more than three quarters done. And now instead of just dealing with Richard and Stephanie, now we're dealing with the president of the label, Jordan Schur. Oh God, everybody has a Jordan Schur story and it's generally 99%. It's horrible. We were opening for Weezer and we played this, I think it was in San Francisco. I don't remember. One of those, it was an arena and I'm, I'm soaking wet and I'm, changing out of my show clothes and this guy who is wearing like a like a like a russian mobster track suit like a full track suit like comes in and he's like you guys and it was it was so fucking cheesy it was like out of a movie it's just like you guys were you guys were hot stuff or something like that yeah the you know hi did he call I'm, you big boy did he call you he may big have, boy big yeah, boy he may have, but I didn't know who the fuck the guy was. He just came into our dressing room and he's like, ah, I think you guys, I think I want to sign you guys. And I was like, $2 million, one record. And then he just, <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. And then he just goes, ha 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 ha. And I, just, and I just turned my back to him and I went to get change. And that was the only time I ever interacted with that guy. And then I, and I hear all, and like, that guy's like the, president of Geffen or something now. And I was like, yeah, fuck that guy. I don't want to work with that guy. <laughs> I can agree. And not to borrow from uh, your other podcast, Jesse, but fuck that guy. Did he start having input into the record? He did. And then also they were being managed by uh, Velvet Hammer. They were like, we don't have a single on the record. To their credit, we went back in to a studio to Mission Sound in Brooklyn and cut the two songs that wound up being the two singles, which was Buried to Lie and Rummers for Drinking. Then the record was done. Then I mixed the record. And Jordan Sherb was like, we need you to get with a A-list producer, like a Jerry Finn or someone like that. Ooh, and the after band's the like, record was done? After the record was done. And the and band's like, uh, screw you. We like this record. We love what Steve did on the record. We love the record that we did. Why are we going to redo it? With, with Jerry Finn. It's not going to, what's what's that going to do? And it's just that that same thing that, you know, uh, a lot of guys who are doing like on the, on the, the small to mid-market stuff, you know, it's like, you don't have a, a platinum record. So you can, you obviously can't be doing a good job. They fired Velvet Hammer. They started having Hard Eight manage them. And then that's how the whole thing, you know, the record sat. And then they negotiated off of Geffen and did a sideways thing onto Vagrant, which was within a scope of the time. And that's how the record eventually went from, it went from drive through to Geffen. And that's how it wound up on Vagrant. Did it feel like almost like an act of desperation getting it to Vagrant? No, not at all. Because I was like, it was basically almost a lateral move because they were still part of that family. I mean, Ginnerscope and Geffen were, but they were part of Universal. They were all tied together. Oh, I guess that's true. So at that point, you know, it was. So it was basically like, let's let's keep it in the family, but let's move it over here and I can, you know, then Vagrant can put it out and no problem. Plus that's in the, you know, the same scene as drive through and at least understands. Exactly. No, it was exactly. It was still like, it was, it was on a label that was big in the scene. 
at that point and like was like, okay, this is great. God, that is so I was crazy happy that, that it actually came out because I thought the record was just going to be shelved completely. Yeah, it sounds like it was really in danger of that. Back to Buddy. That record comes out. What was the response to it? How did it, how was it received? Huge. I mean, it was like, I mean, we went from, you know, having minimal success to being on the tip of, you know, having radio, you know, singles. And I mean, it did get played like Buried Alive did get get some radio love. It never it never shot up and Vagrant didn't have the radio system to do that. And Interscope never fully got on board. with. But it was, I mean, massively successful. It's gone gold and you still can say, you know, it's weird because when it came out, like I like to do this. I like to go back and read internet archive reviews of old records because I think it's really... <laughs> of your own records? Really, yeah, I think it's really interesting and funny to Man, put it, you really are a masochist. Jesus you know? Christ. No, no, no. <laughs> it puts in perspective of like what you do when you do it isn't necessarily ultimately always how it's going to be... That's true. ...received. Remember. Like, you know, I mean, there's records that in our time have come out that have been massively successful or even heralded and people don't listen to them now. When it came out, it was panned critically. Like everybody hated it, said it was, you know, angsty garbage or whatever. But kids loved it. People our age loved it. We were able to touch some type of nerve of mixing the music together in the right way. And lyrically it was, you know, I'm using Charles Bukowski quotes and talking about the Tao Te Ching. And I don't know, it's just it's just a lot of stuff. I don't know. I mean, I didn't, I just was putting me in the songs. And I think that that was touching a nerve with people at the time because of what was going on and it was set to the right soundtrack and the songs were good and was recorded well and we knew we had a good record so we just wanted it to come out and then we were sort of like you know rewarded with the fact that uh it was received well by our fans and and we gained a lot of fans and we did a lot of big touring and it was super successful and ultimately to cap off the entire thing we did the first taste of chaos which if you want to like put a flag in the point when emo really hit its massive peak was the first taste of chaos which was the used my chem kill switch engage under Oath, Seosin, Census Fail, and Static Lullaby, and a couple other bands. And that was just massive. It was a, on a literal arena tour, and all the shows were sold out, and every show had anywhere from ten to 20,000 people. Did you feel a camaraderie in, in that scene? Like, with, like, the My Chem guys and the Used guys? Like, did you feel like you were part of that, t- at least on that Taste of Chaos thing, where you're, like, kind of like, this is our time sort of thing at all? I definitely think so. I definitely think there was, like, a camaraderie. But again, like I had no idea that that just wasn't normal. You know, you're going from where we were to there within the amount of three years, you know, just inception to arena in three years. I don't know. I just thought like, that's like, you don't have perspective. Like I didn't have the perspective, maybe appreciate well, how could it. you? Yeah, I mean, you can't. I mean, like, it's, you know, I've never since been on, well, one other arena tour, but, you know, which was a taste of chaos. But we didn't really know what was happening either. I mean, like, we were modeling our careers off of the band's game before us, like you guys and Alkaline Trio, and these are no effects, bad religion. So I'm just like, okay, look, like, here we are. They want us to go on this tour. Like, I don't know how big this stuff is. I don't know who's listening. I mean, there was no internet. You didn't know. Like, you just, you knew when you showed up to the show and there were thousands of people there. Like, you didn't, or you read a bunch of reviews that said you were really good. So we're reading all these reviews that say we fucking suck, you know, but our show but our shows are doing well and you know, we're getting paid on warp tour to fucking sign things at the Winterfresh gum tent. So I'm like, I don't I don't know. It seems to be going well. My chems over here, they put out a record, people like them, and then you're like, oh shit, like this is really taking off. There was a camaraderie and there was like a little bit, but but again, it was still like, again, I always felt like a little bit of an outsider because I was always like constantly trying to drag the band back to like DIY ethics, which is one of the reasons I wanted to go to Vagrant. I didn't want to be on a major label. I thought it was a sellout. Like I, I actually didn't want to release music like that. I wanted to be quote unquote ethical. I don't know. I wonder if that even made sense. What do you mean? It's like, what's the point? point of having ethics if everybody around you doesn't have ethics. Well, that's and, the, that's exactly the point of it. But I always wonder, like, did I shoot myself in the foot? And did I, like, discount the band because of my own ethics? And, you know, a lot of people quit because it just, we just didn't have the success that uh, can sustain five people in their adult life. And I think everybody always kind of looks back to that point and, and maybe goes, man, we probably should have stayed on the major and swung for the fences. And, you know, because, you know, from, I think, ex-member standpoint, it's like, well, I'm here, not in the band. I'm not doing this. So what's the difference? You know, for me, I mean, obviously I feel like I chose the right thing because I'm still involved and 
this is my life and my livelihood. And I think the ethical decisions I've made have led me to where I am, which people kind of attribute that maybe when I say something, I'm, I'm coming from like a, like an honest, good standpoint. I think that that's the impression that I get of you is that even when people don't agree with you, there's never any like interpretation that you're like playing a character. Yeah, I'm definitely not. We also looked at like some of the bands around us and were critical of their ethics, you know? So I always felt like an outsider because it's just so weird. Like here we are at an arena and like we're all trying to be the biggest band in the world, but I'm looking at my peers and going, well, they're not, I don't know if that's punk and, you know, or that's cool or, you know what I mean? And then I'm like, did it even matter? Or like, and then it, you look at the success they had and you look at success we had and you go, man, like, but I got my ethics and I never did this or I never did that. And like, it starts to become this whole, like, as you, you know, mature, you're just, yeah. I mean, you have to find that balance for yourself and it's an individual sort of choice because like at the end of the day, you can't pay your mortgage with your punk cred. If you want to continue to be making music, you need to make a certain amount of money to, to maintain that, to be able to do it. Only you can make that decision, you know, but it, it is kind of interesting because it seems like you guys kind of your generation of bands had the same problems that we did, but just there was so much more money being thrown at it. Like just as far as like, you know, struggling with like success and, and like competition and, and all that and all that kind of stuff. But then also I was thinking about because like one of the things we were talking about in this is like what was the public perception of stuff as opposed to like what was really happening. And we had that. Like our second record, which is considered is our best selling record and everyone loves now, got totally panned by the press, but we were selling out every single show. My perception of you guys when you came out, I was just like, those guys are really young. <laughs> that was what I thought of. It. Yeah, that's what a lot of people thought. You know, they're just fuck, those guys are really young. Well, and then it gets, tell me about like, cause it gets into this sort of like, I think you guys and my chem especially kind of got into this sort of like a fashion part of it became part of the narrative at yeah, that point. Definitely. Was that something that like you really cultivated or was that just sort of like what, what you were into at the time? To bring you back to like where we came up with my chem. I mean, like one of the first local shows we ever played was with my chem, the big local shows Heath booked us. It was my chem us. We opened for a band called keepsake. And like, that's when we met my chem, you know, and they were on eyeball. So they were like, that was huge. You know, we're like, shit, my chem, man. They're like signed or a local band. And they were working with Jeff from Thursday and we're like, whoa, okay, cool. Like, Love Jeff. you know, and like, yeah. And like, so it was weird. So like we'd all been around each other and like we saw their evolution, you know, and like a lot of their stuff, they were a little older and they were like into like Morrissey and the Smiths and they were into like, you know, some like mod culture and a bunch of my like punk friends were also into like mod culture and stuff. So the reason why we got into fashion was because like we were taking the idea of the punk stuff and trying to like emulate that, but we couldn't find like straight leg jeans for guys. So we started wearing girls jeans and doing our hair like mods, which is where that whole look came from. But I don't think a lot of people like know that. Like we would watch Quadrophenia and like take literal pills. Okay, so we got punk and then we have this mod thing and then we're going to like mix it together and then we're going to wear like, okay, the guys in the getup kids wear like parks and recreation shirts from like Missouri. Okay, so I'm going to go get like a old public work shirt and like wear some skinny jeans and then flat iron my hair. So it's just weird. I don't know. It's just kind of like a weird mix That's of That's interesting things. because I think that the, I, I associate the mod kind of look with the kind of like late 90s San Diego scene. We called them white belts. Mm -hmm. yep. It was just like, yeah. I always wore all black and a white belt. I wore, yep, I wore a white belt. And, uh, it was one of those things that's like a slow cauldron of cultures coming together and then becoming a thing and then obviously getting co-opted and then, you know, being, it just becomes this like bastardized thing of what it wants, of what it technically was even taking from. If you want to point back to why people hated us as human beings, it's because we had massive, like, punk, like... You guys had, yeah, like, the re rebellion punk, like, su the movie Suburbia-style punk. And that fucking roadie you guys had that I, Evitz and I wanted to murder through the whole record. He was our guy. I mean, we all, like, we're like, we're punk. I mean, I I exclusively went through a phase in the Let It Unfold You times where I, like, only listened to 70s UK punk. I was, like, deeply immersed in, like, chaos punk and 
than that. I was just like living that lifestyle by trying to destroy everything. That's just like, people are like, wait, these rich kids from New Jersey are all like acting like pieces of punk shit yeah. while making music. It's a, that is it's like, kind of a, it's kind of a privileged place to come from, <laughs> you know, like to be, to be able to be like, fuck society. It's just like, except. No, no, I don't think we were like, fuck society. I think we we're just like, yo, we want to burn this shit down. No reason, like no literal reason. So like, no agenda, just like no agenda. fuck everything kind of. Yes. And that, that's a really shitty agenda to have. And I think that's, that's it's also not why super people- productive. <laughs> no, it's not. You were children. That's a totally, I'm sure you have a kid now. So I'm telling you, like, it's a, it's an age appropriate thing to have. Like my, my daughter's 18 and she's a fucking, like, she thinks Bernie's too conservative. Like, it's just like, and it's just like, all right, no, I get it. You're supposed to like, but you gotta be fucking realistic about this shit. But like, that's totally like where an 18 year old, I want 18 year olds to be that now because that inspires change later. And so that seems like totally, but I could totally see how that would rub people the wrong way. Like I, yeah, it bummed out a lot of people. And I think that too is a little too much for the vagrant world too, because it was just like, yeah, I mean like, you know, that's, that's, that's not the vibe. Like that's not what we're going for, you know, but it didn't really matter. Cause it was like, we had a successful record and we're over here and we kind of just ended up doing our own thing. I mean, that's kind of how it's always been for us. Like we never really liked by all the other bands. I mean, which is fine. It's not a big deal. And, uh, we weren't liked by press. We were just able to cultivate and maintain and, you know, always keep up a meaningful relationship with our fans, which is, you know, why to this day we exist. And then, but now retroactively, like Let It Unfold You is considered like a, a seminal record of that era, which is just to me wild because at the time it was considered just some other garbage. It's interesting because you're, it's sort of like the the industry and the, the tastemakers at the time didn't get you. And it was like, and you know, you, Geffen didn't get, I mean, Jordan aside, <laughs> who's an idiot, but like didn't really under, understand what it was, but like the kids got it. And like, it's, it's a very like me, it's just an interesting thing to like, cause like you're, you're gen, you know, what they, I think they affectionately called third wave emo now, which I guess is a good way to distinguish things. I don't know if it is or not, but it's really, really interesting to me that you, you talk about it being like post 9-11 because I'd never really thought about that before because I have thought about that we came up during like, you know, the Clinton era when like America was flush with cash and it was like kids had disposable income to go, you know, spend a hundred dollars at a merch table or, or whatever. And, uh, but then your guys is like, just like the socioeconomic and like the political climate that you guys were coming up in was way darker. So much Very darker. Dark. I mean, we were, we were in two wars, you know, first terrorist attack on, um, you know, fucking American soil since Pearl Harbor. I mean, first non-domestic. And uh, yeah, it was dark. It was dark, the economy. I mean, then, and then, dude, by our third record came out on the literal day that uh, the economy pretty much collapsed in 2008. So Jesus Christ. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we've had some real struggles as, as, as far as just like being, we've been at the right place at the right time a bunch of times. And then we've been at the exact wrong time at a bunch of times and you know, I just, it's just interesting. It's interesting to sort of like, you know, be, be a part of music through so much culture that you start to see that it's not, you know, you kind of just got to do your thing, keep your head down and like continue to like make music and be creative. And then like, you know, it'll find its place when it's time for it to find its place. I mean, I kind of like look at Let It Unfold You as like the catcher in the rye for like, emo music because it's like there's something that's just so innocent about Catcher in the Rye but so stupid but it when I when really you, love when this analogy and, and when you read it at the right time it is it means the world to you but if you don't get it at the right time it's insanely stupid and short-sighted and like I was always a really huge, huge J.D. Salinger fan. Like I read his other books, like actually read everything he ever wrote. Not that I tried to make that that, but like my thing was making that angst like intellectual in the most way I could so that it felt like it was taking your teenage, you're like that I'm turning into an adult angst, but actually pointed it and supported it with some like intellectual thought. And it might be the first step on the road to like thinking intellectually. And I think I accomplished that. And I think that that's maybe why people find that record meaningful. Um, Like, I mean, still like a lot of people who are like 21 and 22, you know, people tag me on, on Instagram and there's like, you know, a girl with the side shaved head that looks miserable (laughs) with a bunch of like black eyeliner quoting something from uh, let it unfold you. And I, I I think I might've just captured like a moment that everybody goes through in their life 
where you're not a kid, but you're not an adult, and everybody's telling you that you've got to figure it the fuck out, and you have no idea. And that that's sort of what Catcher in the Rye really is. And like, I was Holden Caulfield. Like, that was my character. Like, I, I was him. I was like a affluent kid that probably thought too much and felt too much and was surrounded by people that I thought were fucking phonies. I remember having this conversation, people of, of my generation in the, in the scene would inherently like trash talk the, this younger generation that's wearing makeup and getting super famous or whatever. And I'm like, I remember I was specifically talking about my chem. I was just like, look, they're good at what they do. If I was 16, I would fucking worship this band, but I'm not. I'm in my 20s and I have a kid. And so I just, I, res- I respect anybody especially musicians who, you know, you got to you gotta figure out what your hustle is and what you're comfortable with. I really like the whole Catcher in the Rye comparison because it really does speak to me. It's like, it's, it's very like time and a place for people. But then like everybody goes through that. Everybody is an angry 18 year old at some point in their life. And then they'll rediscover that, that record. Yeah. And luckily for us, like we just, we're able to be someone's nostalgia, you know? And I, and I fought that for a long time. I think maybe like, I don't know, like seven Seven years ago, maybe maybe a little longer. Like I was just like, man, isn't that cool that like I represent somebody like such a pivotal moment in someone's life? Like I think there's so much like hate that artists put on themselves for like being somebody's like you know people. I'm sure people say to you like, dude, I used to listen to you guys in high school. I used to listen to you guys in middle school. And it's like that is like so inter can be internally crushing to an artist or a musician or anyone because you're just like. Man, but I I have been toiling away for 20 years to do something that is even remotely as successful as that. And I don't even look at that as like seminal anything. And you're telling me that not only did you used to listen to my band, that you pretty much don't. And that you think that that thing is the best thing I've ever done. And if you look at it from that perspective, yeah, it's fucking, I mean, it's like somebody smacking in the face. But if you look at it and like, I'm eternally grateful for the fact that you made something that defines who I am. And I will, for the rest of my life, be defined by what you've done. I mean, there's there's just not a lot of people other than like your parents and some of your friends, but like, you know, you've had that effect on, on potentially millions of people. I mean, that's, that's like, as you start to get older and realize like really all you have is your legacy and you know, what you leave behind through your actions. I mean, you're affecting millions of people with something that's like deeply changed them. And there's just not a lot of people that can like say that. Like anytime anybody ever like criticizes me, I just go, no, like it doesn't, it's like, I've done so much for so many people just by like, being honest or, or being creative. And that's more than most people will ever do in their life. And like, I'd never have to like be worried about anybody's criticism because it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Like, and then it takes a lot of maturity to come to that. Obviously it did not come. It took a lot. I mean, oh, I, 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 I completely seven, And I was, you know, mad at anybody who wanted to like any of the old census fail. You know, I, put out a record that sounds like Converge. It was almost like the death of the band. Everyone was real bummed about that. I completely relate to that. There's a Hard Times headline that is, uh, Get Up Kids fan still refers to something to write home about as their new album. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and and they were, and I, I was like, that's totally true. <laughs> like, like People definitely do that. And so like, but then you have to get into this place in your head where you like, to a certain degree, that's sort of like, it's it's wonderful that you you made something that was that important to people, but it's also if you're going to continue to like move forward in this and continue to make music, it's kind of your pri- your as the songwriter's like price of admission as far as like you know having done that and then playing those songs live whenever we can play concerts again allows me to then have the freedom to make new art. Yeah, you know, totally, totally. Yeah. And yeah. So I, you know, I've come to a place where I like appreciate it. And I think anybody that's like real burnt on there, like, you know, I, it's different than being an actor. Like, I, I think when you're an actor and it's not even yours and you're, you just played some, I don't, know how, people, I don't that, know how people do that. I don't know how. I, I mean, I could never do it, but I could see how that would be. I don't know how tattoo me. artists do it whenever they like make, like, create some piece of art and put it on somebody's body. And then those people just fuck off into the night. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. That's why like, I feel like I still obviously have you know, some ownership of it and some ability to control, like, I don't know. People have often asked me, did I think that you guys having a leaked record for, what was it, like six months that was before the record came out? Yeah. uh, yeah. So people ask me if I think that's what helped make the record bigger, but then people like Evitz is like, oh no, that took away the sales and the record would have been huger. What do you think? I think it was still such in its infancy that I, I don't think people could download like only the truest nerds 
were able to get a hold of things. We were still in like, to download a song, you had to take about potentially 30 minutes or more on LimeWire at that current pace. I don't think it hurt. I mean, but then again, like maybe I never really thought about it from the other perspective. I think the other perspective is a very old music industry way of thinking. But we're still in that place where it was so, I mean, everything was physical. There was no way to get the digital. I still think, I still honestly think that people for the most part didn't hear the record until it fully, fully came out. So I think it is as successful as, as it could have been. And and it might have, it only kind of maybe helped just people like start to mm-hmm. talk about it. You know, I, I don't even know, most people don't even know it was leaked. So that would also lead me to believe that I don't think that many people even really had it. You know what though? Even if it had hurt the record sales, it made the band bigger. And that's ultimately yeah. more important than the sales of any any one record. Here's Steve again. Like, what do you think it is about, I mean, that band in general, but like, what is it about that record that really like hit the nail on the head at that in that moment you know what i mean i don't know i mean i think it was it was also it was, i think it was a huge part of just their youth and their enthusiasm there's definitely a thing on that record that i don't think they've hit since there's just a this crazy it's that same thing that i keep talking about like i go back to it's that that push that energy and i, I just i feed off of that and there was there was a thing like on you know obviously the the singles were one thing but then like even on like that lady in a blue dress song like there's a thing dan's playing for for you know a 15 year old was crazy like his pocket was so good 15 jesus christ they had just turned 15 when we started pre-production he had just turned 15 the big thing was that we'd be in that house they had in the back of the strip club and i had taken my ged about probably like seven eight (laughs) years before so i'm teaching jad and all the tricks i used he had a tutor with him our first record came out when i was 20. Sometimes there are parts of it that make me cringe. I always tell people like, you know, imagine the bad poetry you wrote when you were in high school. And then imagine that's one of your most popular things you've ever put out. And then people go, oh, I love that. And you're like, have to go, thank you. Even though you're like, oh, <laughs> yeah. God. But like, so, so I'm just picturing these kids coming in with these like really, I picture them coming in with like really raw song ideas that needed not polish in a bad way, but like a little bit of like, like refinement. Maybe. Am I making an assumption there? No, no. I mean, I was I was pretty heavy handed with with stuff, but a lot of it was just in my in pre production and rehearsal. I did like we did a lot of pre production on that record. I did a lot of pre production on that record. I did. I was up, you know, rehearsing at Garrett's parents' house. Well, and we even did it when we went to Tracks East to do the drums. Yeah, and we definitely did some stuff at Tracks for sure. And I forgot about the fact that we we started tracking the record at Water Music, and then they they bumped us from the main room that we wanted to use for a record that definitely did not go gold. <laughs> <laughs> it might have been Warren Haynes, but they, they definitely were like, fuck these small time guys and did not realize they were bumping a record that would later go gold. They bumped us to a, the small studio and it was like, it would have been fine, but it was like, it was this like open warehouse kind of concept. And then the the, record, the control room was like in a, in a like construction trailer and like you couldn't that even sounds, hear anything. You couldn't hear because it was like the, the sound was just pouring into the room and I couldn't like make any determination on how anything sounded. So I was like, fuck this, get out of here. And I called, uh, Erica tracks and went back to my old studio and we cut the drums at my old studio. It's probably lucky that them being so young that the drummer was so solid. He was a unicorn for sure. Like to be that young and to have his shit that together, it was great. It's just good vocals and good drummer. If either one of those things are bad, you're dead in the water. I've always said it. Bad drums or bad vocals. That's why that's the only thing you can hear at a concert. (laughs) (laughs) Right? The snare drum and vocals. Yeah, it's true. The only other interesting thing to talk about with the Census Fail record is it's like the post-big budget record era and how we had to do it so scrappily that we were like doing edits in both of our houses. Yeah, doing edits in both of our houses. We started in a commercial studio and we used up the budget for that. Then we wound up going to like a couple of smaller places to do some overdubs. And then we did a good portion of it back in my house, in my condo in Jersey. I had a, you know, my second bedroom, my spare bedroom. I had set up, I set up my gear in there and made a little control room. And we would do, um, we did vocals. I did vocals with Buddy on like, uh, on the singles on Buried Alive. We did that literally because I think we start, we did it at mission, but then we wound up totally revamping the, the melody, like the verse melody. We completely revamped it in my house in Jersey and rewrote the lyrics. Rewrote the lyrics, and I definitely helped him retool the melody, the verse melody, for sure. 
But the funny thing was, is you had never recorded anything in your apartment. You were scared that your neighbors were going to complain because Buddy was going to sound so crazy. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But it worked fine. Luckily, my condo was an end unit, so I only had to deal with people above me. I didn't have anybody next to me, like out in the living room. So it was like, it worked out fine, just fine. And I mean, I mixed that record in my bedroom, which is crazy. And that was the funny thing of that era, is that... We were mixing records instead of in studios, and then they were ending up on MTV being played all the time that we made in our bedrooms. And that was the beginning of that era. Yeah. I mean, that's also like kind of the, the beginning of the fall of the old music industry. It's kind of funny. I'm looking, so I'm looking at your Wikipedia page right now, just because I wanted to kind of get a sense of this stuff. And it's very diverse because Sepultura, The Cure, Census Failed, Dillinger Escape Plan. Yeah. I've always loved that. Um, I've always loved that kind of dichotomy of doing really heavy stuff and then doing like poppier stuff. I like doing that. I like doing back to back, like do a heavy record and then do a poppy record. I've always felt that they cross contaminate each other as far as like my approach to things. Cause I'll, I'll take like a heavy song and like think more in a pop structure as far as like song structure and like, you know, like, so it's not just a bunch of parts together and like trying to make it more in a song format. And then like, I'll also like the popular stuff and try to give it a little more of an edge because I've just worked on a heavy thing. And I, I always feel like I, I, I like that instead of just working on the same kind of record, like five of those in a row, it's just like, eventually you wind up going back on the same tricks. You wind up like going back to the same tropes that you do it on like two records ago. It's like, well, I just did that. Fuck, oh, but that's a good idea, I think, isn't it? I feel that way about songwriting stuff too. Of just like, let me write something quiet and then let's go take this to the band and like make something that's like really loud and fast. And Exactly. Because if you just did that all one way the whole time, like I said, you, I'm sure it's just, it's human nature. You just wind up falling back on certain little tricks that you know work. Or like if you're stuck on something, it's like, I could do this here. I can make this transition here. And I know that's going to work and it'll get me where I need to go. Am I really pushing any boundaries? Am I really creating something or am I just filling in a blank? Yeah. And we made a conscious decision on our third record to be like, there's not going to be any octave chords on it. We're not going to do any like big halftime ending chorus. No octaves you know. and no pick slides? What kind of emo record is that? <laughs> what? Then it was just kind of like cutting off our nose to spite our face. We're just no, like, I, I agree 100%. You know, like you can, you got to find that balance between you don't want to be just formulaic, but then at the same time, if it's like, but if that's what we sound like, then don't, don't like, you know, hobble yourself. It's just, you know, it's interesting. Things you learn from doing it over and over and over again, putting in your 10,000 hours. That's it for this episode of Vagrant Records, 25 Years on the Streets. On our next episode, we will tell the rest of the story of Senses Fails' time on Vagrant. So be sure to subscribe to this podcast and rate it on iTunes. This podcast was produced by Jesse Cannon for Museformation and executive produced by Fred Feldman and Andrew Ellis. Thanks so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again for the next episode.